Chapter One of The Pot Hunters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gareth Rowlands. The Pot Hunters by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter One. Dedication to Joan Effie and Ernestine Bowes Lyon. One. Patient perseverance produces pugilistic prodigies. Where have I seen that face before? said a voice. Tony Graham looked up from his bag. Hello, Alan, he said. What the dickens are you up here for? I was rather thinking of doing a little boxing. If you've no objection, of course. But you ought to be on a bed of sickness and that sort of thing. I heard you'd crocked yourself. So I did. Nothing much, though. Trod on myself during a game of fives and twisted my ankle a bit. In for the middles, of course. Yes. So am I. Yes, so I saw in the sportsman. It says you weigh eleven three. Bit more, really, I believe. Shan't be able to have any lunch, or I shall have to go in for the heavies. What are you? Just eleven. Well, let's hope we meet in the final. Rather, said Tony. It was at Aldershot, to be more exact, in the dressing-room of the Queen's Avenue Gymnasium at Aldershot, that the conversation took place. From east and west and north and south, from Dan even unto Beersheba, the representatives of the public schools had assembled to box, fence, and perform gymnastic prodigies for fame and silver medals. The room was full of all sorts and sizes of them, heavyweights looking ponderous and muscular, featherweights diminutive but wiry, lightweights, middleweights, fencers, and gymnasts in scores, some wearing the unmistakable air of the veteran, for whom Aldershot has no mysteries, others nervous and wishing themselves back again at school. Tony Graham had chosen a corner near the door. This was his first appearance at Aldershot. St. Austin's was his school, and he was by far the best middleweight there, but his doubts as to his ability to hold his own against all comers were extreme, nor were they lessened by the knowledge that his cousin, Alan Thompson, was to be one of his opponents. Indeed, if he had not been a man of metal, he might well have thought that with Alan's advent his chances were at an end. Alan was at rugby. He was the son of a baronet who owned many acres in Wiltshire, and had fixed opinions on the subject of the whole duty of man who, he held, should be, before anything else, a sportsman. Both the Thompsons, Alan's brother Jim was at St. Austin's in the same house as Tony, were good at most forms of sport. Jim, however, had never taken to the art of boxing very kindly, but, by way of compensation, Alan had skill enough for two. He was a splendid boxer, quick, neat, scientific. He had been up to Aldershot three times, once as a featherweight and twice as a lightweight, and each time he had returned with the silver medal. As for Tony, he was more a fighter than a sparer. 
When he paid a visit to his uncle's house, he boxed with Alan daily, and invariably got the worst of it. Alan was too quick for him, but he was clever with his hands. His supply of pluck was inexhaustible, and physically he was as hard as nails. "'Is your ankle all right again now?' he asked. Mm, "'Pretty well. It wasn't much of a sprain. Interfered with my training a good bit, though. I ought by rights to be well under eleven stone. You're all right, I suppose?' "'Not bad.' Boxing takes it out of you more than footer or a race. I was in good footer training long before I started to get fit for Aldershot, but I think I ought to get along fairly well. Any idea who's in against us? Harrow, Felsted, Wellington. That's all, I think. St. Paul's? No. Good. Well, I hope your first man mops you up. I have a conscientious objection to scrapping with you. Alan laughed. "'You'd be all right,' he said, "'if you weren't so beastly slow with your guard. "'Why don't you wake up? "'You hit like blazes.' "'I think I shall start guarding two seconds before you lead. "'By the way, don't have any false delicacy "'about spoiling my aristocratic features. "'On the ground of relationship, you know.' "'Rather not. "'Let old acquaintances be forgot. "'I'm not Thompson for the present. "'I'm rugby.' "'Just so.' And I'm St. Austin's. Personally, I'm going for the knockout. You won't feel hurt. This was in the days before the headmaster's conference had abolished the knockout blow, and a boxer might still pay attention to the point of his opponent's jaw with an easy conscience. I probably shall if it comes off, said Alan. I say, it occurs to me that we shall be weighing in in a couple of minutes, and I haven't started to change yet. Good. I've not brought evening dress or somebody else's footer clothes, as usually happens on these festive occasions. He was just pulling on his last boot when a gymnasium official appeared in the doorway. Will all those who are entering for the boxing get ready for the weighing in, please? He said, and a general exodus ensued. The weighing in at the public school's boxing competition is something in the nature of a religious ceremony. But even religious ceremonies come to an end, and after a quarter of an hour or so, Tony was weighed in the balance and found correct. He strolled off on a tour of inspection. After a time, he lighted upon the St. Austin's gym instructor, whom he had not seen since they had parted that morning, the one on his way to the dressing room, the other to the refreshment bar for a modest quencher. "'Well, Mr. Graham?' Hello, Dawkins. What time does this show start? Do you know when the middleweights come on? Well, you can't say for certain. They may keep them back a bit, or they may make a start with them first thing. No, the lightweights are going to start. What number did you draw, sir? One. Then you'll be in the first middleweight pair. That'll be after these two gentlemen. These two gentlemen, the first of the lightweights, were by this time in the middle of a warmish opening round. Tony watched them with interest and envy. How beastly nippy they are, he said. Wish I could duck like that, he added. Well, the old thing there is you have to watch the other man's eyes. But lightweights is always quicker at the duck than what heavier men are. You get the best boxing in the lightweights, though the feathers spar quicker. 
Soon afterwards, the contest finished amidst volleys of applause. It had been a spirited battle, and an exceedingly close thing. The umpires disagreed. After a short consultation, the referee gave it as his opinion that, on the whole, R. Cloverdale of Bedford had had a shade the worst of the exchanges, and that, in consequence, J. Robinson of St. Paul's was the victor. This was what he meant. What he said was, "'Robinson wins!' in a sharp voice, as if somebody were arguing about it. The pair then shook hands and retired. First bout, middleweights, shrilled the MC. W.P. Ross, Wellington, and A.C.R. Graham, St. Austin's. Tony and his opponent retired for a moment to the changing room, and then made their way amidst applause onto the raised stage on which the ring was pitched. Mr. W.P. Ross proceeded to the farther corner of the ring, where he sat down and was vigorously massaged by his two seconds. Tony took the opposite corner and submitted himself to the same process. It is a very cheery thing at any time to have one's arms and legs kneaded like bread, and it is especially pleasant if one is at all nervous. It sends a glow through the entire frame. Like somebody's something, it is both grateful and comforting. Tony's seconds were curious specimens of humanity. One was a gigantic soldier, very gruff and taciturn, and with decided leanings towards pessimism. The other was also a soldier. He was in every way his colleague's opposite. He was half his size, had red hair, and was bubbling over with conversation. The other could not interfere with his hair or his size, but he could with his conversation, and whenever he attempted a remark, he was promptly silenced, much to his disgust. Blame your muscle, ye Fred, he began, as he rubbed Tony's left arm. Muscle ain't everything, said the other gloomily, and there was silence again. Are you ready? Seconds away, said the referee. Time! The two stood up to one another. The Wellington representative was a plucky boxer, but he was not in the same class as Tony. After a few exchanges, the latter got to work, and after that there was only one man in the ring. In the middle of the second round, the referee stopped the fight and gave it to Tony, who came away as fresh as he had started, and a great deal happier and more confident. "'Did us proud, Fred,' began the garrulous man. "'Yes, but that ain't nothing. You wait till he meets young Thompson. I've seen him box here three years and never been beat yet.' Three blooming years, yes. This might have depressed anybody else, but as Tony already knew all there was to be known about Alan's skill with the gloves, it had no effect upon him. A sanguinary heavyweight encounter was followed by the first bout of the feathers and the second of the lightweights. And then it was Alan's turn to fight the Harrow representative. It was not a very exciting bout. Alan took things very easily. He knew his training was by no means all it should have been, and it was not his game to take it out of himself with any firework business in the trial heats. He would reserve that for the final. So he sparred three gentle rounds with the Harrow sportsman, just doing sufficient to keep the lead and obtain the verdict after the last round. He finished without having turned a hair. He had only received one really hard blow, and that had done no damage. After this came a long series of fights, 
the heavyweights shed their blood in gallons for name and fame the featherweights gave excellent exhibitions of science and the lightweight pairs were fought off until there remained only the final to be decided robinson of st paul's against a charterhouse boxer in the middleweights there were three competitors still in the running allen tony and a felstead man they drew lots and the bye fell to tony who put up an uninteresting three rounds with one of the soldiers neither fatiguing himself very much henderson of felstead proved a much tougher nut to crack than allen's first opponent he was a rushing boxer and in the first round had if anything the best of it in the last two however allen gradually forged ahead gaining many points by his perfect style alone he was declared the winner but he felt much more tired than he had done after his first fight by the time he was required again however he had had plenty of breathing space the final of the lightweights had been decided and robinson of st paul's after the custom of the paulines had set the crown upon his afternoon's work by fighting the carthusian to a standstill in the first round there only remained now the finals of the heavies and middles it was decided to take the latter first tony had his former seconds and dawkins had come over to his corner to see him through the ordeal the old thing here he kept repeating is to keep going hard all the time and wear him out he's too quick for you to try any sparring with yes said tony the old thing continued the expert is to faint with your left and it with your right this was excellent in theory no doubt but tony felt that when he came to put it into practice allan might have other schemes on hand and bring them off first are you ready seconds out of the ring time go in sir odd whispered the red-haired man as tony rose from his place allan came up looking pleased with matters in general he gave tony a cousinly grin as they shook hands tony did not respond he was feeling serious and wondering if he could bring off his knockout before the three rounds were over he had his doubts the fight opened slowly both were cautious for each knew the other's powers suddenly just as tony was thinking of leading allan came in like a flash a straight left between the eyes a right on the side of the head and a second left on the exact tip of the nose and he was out again leaving tony with a helpless feeling of impotence and disgust then followed more sparring tony could never get in exactly the right position for a rush allan circled round him with an occasional feint then he hit out with the left tony ducked again he hit and again tony ducked but this time the left stopped halfway and his right caught tony on the cheek just as he swayed to one side it staggered him and before he could recover himself in darted allan again with another trio of blows ducked a belated left counter got in two stinging hits on the ribs and finished with a left drive which took tony clean off his feet and deposited him on the floor beside the ropes silence please 
said the referee, as a burst of applause greeted this feat. Tony was up again in a moment. He began to feel savage. He had expected something like this, but that gave him no consolation. He made up his mind that he really would rush this time, but just as he was coming in, Alan came in instead. It seemed to Tony for the next half-minute that his cousin's fists were never out of his face. He looked on the world through a brown haze of boxing-glove. Occasionally his hand met something solid, which he took to be Alan, but this was seldom, and whenever it happened, it only seemed to bring him back again like a boomerang. Just at the most exciting point, time was called. The pessimist shook his head gloomily as he sponged Tony's face. "'You must lead if you want to hit him,' said the garrulous man. "'You're too slow. Go in at him, sir, with both hands, and you'll be all right, won't you, Fred?' "'I said how it'd be,' was the only reply Fred would vouchsafe. Tony was half afraid the referee would give the fight against him without another round, but, to his joy, time was duly called. He came up to the scratch as game as ever, though his head was singing. He meant to go in for all he was worth this round. And go in he did. Alan had managed, in performing a complicated manoeuvre, to place himself in a corner, and Tony rushed. He was sent out again with a flush hit on the face. He rushed again, and again met Alan's left. Then he got past, and in the confined space had it all his own way. Science did not tell here. Strength was the thing that scored. Hard half-arm smashes, left and right, at face and body, and the guard could look after itself. Alan uppercut him twice, but after that he was nowhere. Tony went in with both hands. There was a prolonged rally, and it was not until time had been called that Alan was able to extricate himself. Tony's blows had been mostly body blows, and very warm ones at that. "'That's right, sir,' was the comment of the red-haired second. "'Keep them both going hard, and you'll win yet. You had him proper then, hadn't he, Fred?' and even the pessimist was obliged to admit that Tony could fight, even if he was not quick with his guard. Alan took the ring slowly. His want of training had begun to tell on him, and some of Tony's blows had landed in very tender spots. He knew that he could win if his wind held out, but he had misgivings. The gloves seemed to weigh down his hands. Tony opened the ball with a tremendous rush, Alan stopped him neatly. There was an interval while the two sparred for an opening. Then Alan fainted and dashed in. Tony did not hit him once. It was the first round all over again. Left, right, left, right, and finally, as had happened before, a tremendously hot shot which sent him under the ropes. He got up, and again Alan darted in. Tony met him with a straight left. A rapid exchange of blows, and the end came. Alan lashed out with his left. Tony ducked sharply, and brought his right across with every ounce of his weight behind it, fairly onto the point of the jaw. The right cross counter is distinctly one of those things which it is more blessed to give than to receive. Alan 
collapsed. Nine, ten, the timekeeper closed his watch. Graham wins, said the referee. Look after that man there. End of chapter one.